Hello all, and welcome back to Tangents on Cracked Spines. It's been a week, sorry this is late, but it's an update. Uh, if you're new here, I'm very glad. Welcome to the bookworms. Um, but maybe go back two episodes to start this story from the beginning. As a quick intro, I'm Frankie, and we'll be reading with unedited personal commentary on the classics, or in reality, any story in the public domain. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content holds adult themes and language. Like this one. I'm just going to throw that warning out. This episode, I've already tried to uh, record it, but I was yawning every five minutes. Um, It's very eugenicist-type speech about describing any non-white person. It's, yeah, it's a problematic chapter, I'm sorry. Um, so I'm just warning you from the beginning. Now that I've said all that, what are we reading? Call of Cthulhu, chapter two. Well, Call of Cthulhu, we're going into chapter two. Um, in the last episode, what happened? Guy's uncle died. He went through his uh, stuff, found that he was writing a paper on um, maddening dreams, essentially. Um, Specifically focusing on this one artist who had created really weird sculptures uh, based off of his dreams, like nightmarish type sculptures. Um, he'd been in contact with a bunch of other, um, scientists to try and discover it. He also, uh, spoke to a Detective Lagrasse from New Orleans about a cult he had found in Louisiana, uh, based off of, uh, loving the old ones, the old gods, um... And they had been arrested for various things. And they were essentially considered insane. Uh, He met Detective Lagrasse at a conference who... He was like, hey look! Anthropological meeting of eggheads. Please, tell me what this bass relief of Cthulhu is. And only one of them had even any kind of recognition from a similar cult in Greenland. Uh, the big thing was, wherever the cult was, it always said in his house at Raleigh, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Which I think is weird that, you know, any dead creature is, uh, dreaming, but whatever. And now to begin. And now, in response to a general and urgent demand, Inspector Lagrasse related as fully as possible his experience with the swamp worshippers telling a story to which I could see my uncle attached profound significance. It savored of the wildest dreams of Mythmaker and Theosophist. I will say that word correctly eventually. And disclosed an astonishing degree of cosmic imagination among such half-castes and pariahs as might be expected to possess it. On November 1st, 1907, there had come to the New Orleans police a frantic summons from the swamp and lagoon country to the south. 
The squatters there, mostly primitive but good-natured descendants of Lafitte's men, were in the grip of a stark terror from an unknown thing which had stolen upon them in the night. It was voodoo, apparently. And again... Voodoo is not an all-encompassing word, it's a religion! But voodoo of a more terrible sort than they had ever known. At least they recognized that not all voodoo is bad? And some of their women and children had disappeared since the malevolent Tom-Tom had begun its incessant beating far within its, the black-haunted woods, where no dweller ventured. There were insane shouts and harrowing screams, soul-chilling chants, and dancing devil flames. And the frightened messenger added that people could stand it no more. So a body of twenty police, filling two carriages and an automobile, had set out in the late afternoon with the shivering squatter as a guide. I love how they can have, like, a carriage, several carriages and an automobile, and they're all going the same speed. At the end of the passable road, they alighted, and for miles splashed on in silence through the terrible cypress woods, where day never came. Ugly roots and malignant hanging nooses of Spanish moss beset them. Well, that's definitely a descriptor. And now and then a pile of dank stones of fragrant uh, dank stones or fragment of a rotting wall intensified by its hint of morbid habitation, a depression which every malformed tree and every fungus islet combined to create. His sentences really are kind of run onish. Commas They're there for a reason. At length, the squatter settlement, a miserable huddle of huts, hove in sight. And hysterical dwellers ran out to cluster around the group of bobbing lanterns. The muffled beat of tom-toms was now faintly audible from far, far ahead. And a curdling shriek came at infrequent intervals when the wind shifted. A reddish glare, too, seemed to filter through the pale undergrowth beyond endless avenues of forest night. Reluctant even to be left alone again, each one of the cowed squatters refused point-blank to advance another inch toward the scene of unholy worship. So Inspector Lagrasse and his 19 colleagues plunged on unguided into the black arcades of horror that none of them had ever tried before. Because that's such a smart idea. The region, now entered by the police, was one of traditionally evil repute, substantially unknown and untraveled by white men. There were legends of a hidden lake unglimpsed by mortal sight, in which dwelt a huge, formless, white, polypus thing with luminous eyes, and squatters whispered that bat-winged devils flew out of the caverns and inner earth to worship it at night. I like bats. That's not nice. They said it had been there before Deberville, before LaSalle, before the Indians, and before even the wholesome beasts and birds of the woods. This was written in the 1920s. This was written in the 1920s. It was nightmare itself, and to see it was to die. And that said, so let's all traipse in together and pray. But it made men dream, 
so they knew enough to keep away. The present voodoo orgy was, indeed, the merest fringe of this abhorred area. But that location was bad enough, hence perhaps the very place of the worship had terrified the squatters more than the shocking sounds and incidents. Oh boy. Only poetry or madness could do justice to the noises heard by Lagrasse's men as they plowed on through the black morass to toward the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. There are vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts, and it is a terrible to hear the one when the source should yield the other. Animal fury and orgastic license here whip themselves to demonic heights by howls and squawking ecstasies that tore and reverberated through those nighted woods like pestilential tempests from the gulfs of hell. Alright. Now and then, the less organized elation would cease, and from what seemed a well-drilled chorus of hoarse voices would rise and sing-song chant that hideous phrase or ritual that I'm gonna botch. Fingli mongwath Cthulhu rale wahagnip naugfatan then the men, having reached a spot where the trees were thinner, came suddenly in sight of the spectacle itself. Four of them reeled, one fainted, and two were shaken into a frantic cry which the mad cacophony of the orgy fortunately deadened. Alright, so that's seven of twenty. What happened to the other thirteen? Lagrasse dashed swamp water on the face of the fainting men. Ooh and all stood trembling and nearly hypnotized with horror. In a natural glade of the swamp stood a grassy island of perhaps an acre's extent, clear of trees and tolerably dry. On this now leaped and twisted a more indescribable horde of human abnormality than any but a simi or angarola could paint. Void of clothing, this hybrid spawn were braying, bellowing, and writhing about a monstrous ring-shaped bonfire, in the center of which, revealed by occasional rifts in the curtain of flame, stood a great granite monolith some eight feet in height, on top of which, incongruous with its diminutiveness, rested the noxious carven statuette. From a wide circle of ten scaffolds set up at regular intervals, with the flame-girt monolith as a center, hung, head downward, the oddly marred bodies of the helpless squatters who had disappeared. It was inside this circle that the ring of worshippers jumped and roared, the general direction of the mass motion being from left to right, an endless bacchanal between the ring of bodies and the ring of fire. And yes, I can read bacchanal, but not half the other words. Leave me alone. It may have been only imagination, and it may have been only echoes which induced one of the men, an excitable Spaniard, to fancy he heard antiphonal responses to the ritual from some far and unilluminated spot deeper within the wood of ancient legendary and horror. This man, Joseph de Galvez, I later met and questioned, and he provided dis 
distractingly, and he proved distractingly imaginative. He indeed went so far as to a hint of the faint beating of great wings, and of a glimpse of shining eyes and mountainous white bulk beyond the remotest trees. But I suppose he had been hearing too much narrative superstition. I wonder if that's supposed to be like one of the like modern old ones or whether that's supposed to be like a form of Cthulhu because I feel like everything makes Cthulhu green not white. Actually the horrified pause of the men was of comparatively brief duration. Duty came first and although there must have been nearly a hundred mongrel celebrants in the throng the police relied on their firearms, oh look, nothing new, plunged determinedly into the nauseous rot. For five minutes, the resultant din and chaos were beyond description. Wild blows were struck, shots were fired, and escapes were made. But in the end, Legrasse was able to count some 47 sullen prisoners, whom he forced to dress in haste and fall into line between two rows of policemen. Five of the worshippers lay dead, and two severely wounded ones were carried away on improvised stretchers by their fellow prisoners. Oh, look. They, well, that's still better odds than well, they would have normally. The image on the monolith, of course, was carefully removed and carried back by Lagrasse. Okay. So what about the, like, five dead people hanging on the monolith? Any, anybody do anything about them? Give, allow them to get a proper burial, maybe? No? <sighs> Examined at headquarters after a trip of intense strain and weariness, the prisoners all proved to be men of a very low, mixed-blooded, and mentally aberrant type. Most were seamen, and I'm going to uh, ignore the rest of that sentence. Essentially, they were people of color. And they gave a coloring of Buddhism to the heterogeneous cult. But before many questions were asked, it became manifest that something far deeper and older than fetishism was involved. Degraded and ignorant as they were, the creatures held with surprising consistency to the central idea of their loathsome fate. They worshipped, so they said, the great old ones, who lived ages before there were any men, who came to the young world out of the sky. Oh look, ancient alien conspiracists. Those old ones were now gone, inside the earth and under the sea. I wonder if he stole that from uh, War of the Worlds. Pretty sure that came first. But their dead bodies had told their secrets and dreams to the first men. Because dead bodies can speak. I thought dead men told no tales. Who formed a cult which had never died. This was that cult. And the prisoners said it had always existed and always would exist. Hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world until the time when the great priest Cthulhu, and that is how I'm going to continue pronouncing it because while it may not be right, I'm not an elder god, I can pronounce it how I want. 
From his dark house in the mighty city of Raleigh, under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Someday he would call, when the stars were ready, and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. Meanwhile, no more must be told. There was a secret which even torture could not extract. You shouldn't be torturing prisoners! You shouldn't be torturing anybody. Mankind was not absolutely alone among the conscious things of Earth, for shapes came out of the dark to visit the faithful few. But these were not the great old ones. No, no man had ever seen the... I don't want a phone call. No man had ever seen the old ones. The carven idol was Great Cthulhu, but none might say whether or not the others were precisely like him. No one could read the old writing now, but things were told by word of mouth. The chanted ritual was not the secret. That was never spoken aloud, only whispered. The chant meant only this. In his house at Raleigh, dead Cthulhu waits streaming. Only two of the prisoners were found sane enough to be hanged. and the rest were committed to various institutions, all denied a part in the ritual murders and averred that the killing had been done by black-winged ones which had come to them from their immemorial meeting place in the haunted wood. But of those mysterious allies, no coherent account could ever be gained. What the police did extract came mainly from an immensely aged individual named Castro, who claimed to have sailed to strange ports and talked with undying leaders of the cult in the mountains of China. Old Castro remembered bits of hideous legend that paled the speculations of theosophists and made man and the world seem recent and transient indeed. There had been eons when other things ruled the earth, and they had had great cities. Remains of them, he said, the deathless Chinaman, had told them, were still to be found as cyclopean stones on islands in the Pacific. They all died vast epochs of time before men came, but there were arts which could revive them when the stars had come round to the right positions in the cycle of eternity. They had, indeed, come themselves from the stars and brought their images with them. These great old ones, Castro continued, were not composed altogether of flesh and blood. They had shape, for did not the star-fashioned image prove it? But that shape was not made of matter. Hey, look. <laughs> Tying back into the last story. When the stars were right, they could plunge from world to world through the sky. But when the stars were wrong, I didn't know stars could be wrong, but whatever, they could not live. That doesn't seem beneficial to the race. But although they no longer lived, they would never really die. They all lay in stone houses in their great city of Raleigh, preserved by the spells of mighty Cthulhu, for a glorious resurrection when the stars and the earth might once more be ready for them. 
Capital T them, by the way. But at that time, some force from outside must serve to liberate their bodies. The spells that preserved them intact likewise prevented them from making an initial move. And they could only lie awake in the dark and think whilst uncounted millions of years rolled by. I'm not sure that was a good way to go. Like, yay, I can stay alive in like a cryogenic phase, but I need to rely on people I don't know to release me. They knew all that was occurring in the universe, but their mode of speech was transmitted thought. Even now, they talked in their tombs. When after infinities of chaos, the first men came, the great old ones spoke to the sensitive among them by molding their dreams, for only thus could their language reach the fleshy minds of mammals. Then, whispered Castro, those first men formed the cult around small idols which the Great Ones showed them. Idols brought in dim areas from dark stars. That cult would never die till the stars came right again. And the secret priest would take Great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of Earth. I'm not sure that would change much nowadays. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. So soon. Then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves. That doesn't seem like a good thing. And all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Gotta remember, this was before World War II. We don't use that word just any old way nowadays. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rights, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. In the elder time, chosen men had talked with the entombed old ones in dreams. But then something had happened. The great stone city Raleigh, with its monoliths and sepulchres, had sunk beneath the waves. And the deep waters, full of the one primal mystery through which not even thought can pass, had cut off the spectral intercourse. But memory never died. And high priests said that the city would rise again when the stars were right. Then came out of the earth the black spirits of earth, moldy and shadowy and full of dim rumors, picked up in caverns beneath forgotten sea bottoms. But of them, old Castro dared not speak much. Oh, does this mean that the Mariana Trench is hiding Cthulhu? I mean, we know more about space than we do our own waters. He cut himself off hurriedly, and no amount of persuasion or subtlety could elicit more... I don't care about Redbox. The, uh, elicit more in this direction. The size of the old ones, too, he curiously declined to mention. It would be hilarious if we always depict him as, like, this huge creature, and he's actually as big as a diminutive statue. 
Pygmy God, Pygmy God. Of the cult, he said that he thought the center lay amid the pathless deserts of Arabia, where Irem, the city of pillars, dreams hidden and untouched. It was not allied to the European witch cult and was virtually unknown beyond its members. No book had ever really hinted of it, though the Deathless Chinaman said that there were double meanings in the Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazarad, which the initiated might read as they chose, especially the much-discussed couplet, That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. Lagrasse, deeply impressed and not a little bewildered, had inquired in vain concerning the historic affiliations of the cult. Castro apparently had told the truth when he said that it was wholly secret. The authorities at Tulane University could shed no light upon either cult or image, and now the detective had come to the highest authorities in the country and met with no more than the Greenland tale of Professor Webb. The feverish interest aroused at the meeting by Lagrasse's tale, corroborated as it was by the statuette, is echoed in the subsequent correspondence of those who attended, although scant mention occurs in the formal publications of the society. Caution is the first care of those accustomed to face occasional charlantry. Charlantry. Why can I not say that? An imposture. Lagrasse for some time lent the image to Professor Webb, but at the latter's death, it was returned to him and remains in his possession. Shouldn't it technically remain in police possession? Like, in evidence, not as a personal possession? Where I viewed it not long ago. It is truly a terrible thing and unmistakably akin to the dream sculpture of young Wilcox. That my uncle was excited by the tale of the sculptor, I did not wonder, for what thoughts must arise upon hearing, after a knowledge of what Lagrasse had learned of the cult, of a sensitive young man who had dreamed not only the figure and exact hieroglyphics of the swamp-found image and the Greenland Devil tablet, but had come, in his dreams, upon at least three of the precise words of the formula uttered alike by the Esquimaux Diabolists and mongrel Louisianans. Professor Engel's instant start on an investigation of the utmost thoroughness was imminently natural, though privately I suspected young Wilcox of having heard of the cult in some indirect way and of having invented a series of dreams to heighten and continue the mystery at my uncle's expense. Okay, nobody at a conference that studies these pe- uh, that studies these things had heard of the cult. How did a random uh, artist hear of it? From a drinking buddy? Like, the dream narratives and cuttings collected by the professor were, of course, strong corroboration, but the rationalism of my mind and the extravagance of the whole subject led me to adopt what I thought the most sensible conclusions. I understand that, but at the same time, 
Nothing about this is sensible. So, after thoroughly studying the manuscript again and correlating the theosophical and anthropological notes with the cult narrative of Lagrasse, oh no, I made a trip to Providence to see the sculptor and give him the rebuke I thought proper for so boldly imposing upon a learned and aged man. Wilcox still lived alone in the Fleur de Lis building in Thomas Street, a hideous Victorian imitation of 17th century Breton architecture, which flaunts its stuccoed front amidst the lovely colonial houses on the ancient hill and under the very shadow of the first Georgian steeple in America. Can I just say that colonial houses are not all what they're cracked up to be? They have very tiny hallways and their steps are hideous. Like, they're terrible to walk up. The outside is pretty, but like, they're really not a good setup. I found him at work in his rooms, and at once conceded from the specimens scattered about that his genius is indeed profound and authentic. He will, I believe, sometime be heard from as one of the great decadents, for he has crystallized in clay and will one day mirror in marble those nightmares and fantasies which Arthur Mackin evokes in prose and Clark Ashton Smith makes visible in verse and painting. Dark, frail, and somewhat unkept in aspect, he turned languidly at my knock and asked me my business without rising. When I told him who I was, he displayed some interest, for my uncle had excited his curiosity in probing his strange dreams, yet had never explained the reason for the study. I did not enlarge his knowledge in this regard, but sought with some subtlety to draw him out. In a short time, I became convinced of his absolute sincerity, for he spoke of the dreams in a manner none could mistake. They and their subconscious residuum had influenced his art profoundly, and he showed me a morbid statue whose contours almost made me shake with the potency of its black suggestion. He could not recall having seen the original of this thing, except in his own dream bas-relief. But the outlines had formed themselves insensibly under his hands. It was, no doubt, the giant shape he had raved of in delirium. That he really knew nothing of the hideous cult, save from what my uncle's relentless catechism had let fall, he soon made clear, and again, I strove to think of some way in which he could possibly have received the weird impressions. He talked of his dreams in a strangely poetic fashion, making me see with terrible vividness the damp cyclopean city of slimy green stone, whose geometry, he oddly said, was all wrong. And here, with frightened expectancy, the ceaseless, half-mental calling from underground, Cthulhu Fatan, Cthulhu Fatan. These words had formed part of that dead ritual which told of dead Cthulhu's dream vigil in his stone vault at Raleigh. And I felt deeply moved despite my rational beliefs. Wilcox, I was sure, had heard of the cult in some casual way and had soon forgotten it amidst the mass of his equally weird reading and imagining. Later, by virtue of its sheer impressiveness, it had found subconscious expression in dreams, in the bas-relief, and in the terrible statue I now beheld. So that his imposture upon my uncle had been a very innocent one. The youth was of a type, at 
once slightly affected and slightly ill-mannered, which I could never like. But I was willing enough now to admit both his genius and his honesty. I took leave of him amicably and wish him all the success his talent promises. The matter of the cult still remained to fascinate me, and at times I had visions of personal fame from researches into its origin and connections. I visited New Orleans, talked with Lagrasse and others of that old-time raiding party, saw the frightful image, and even questioned such of the prisoners as still survived. Old Castro, unfortunately, had been dead for some years. What I now heard so graphically at first hand, though it was really no more than a detailed confirmation of what my uncle had written, excited me afresh, for I felt sure that I was on the track of a very real, very secret, and very ancient religion, whose discovery would make me an anthropologist of note. My attitude was still one of absolute materialism, as I wish it still were and I discounted the almost inexplicable perversity, the coincidence of the dream notes and odd cuttings collected by Professor Angle. One thing I began to suspect, and which I now fear I know, is that my uncle's death was far from natural. He fell on a narrow hill street, leading up from an ancient waterfront swarming with foreigners after a careless push from a soldier. I did not forget the mixed blood and marine pursuits of the cult members in Louisiana and would not be surprised to learn of secret methods and poison needles as and as anciently known as the cryptic rites and beliefs. Lagrasse and his men, it is true, have been let alone, but in Norway a certain seaman who saw things is dead. Might not the deeper inquiries of my uncle after encouraging the sculptor's data have come to sinister ears? I think Professor Angle died because he knew too much or because he was likely to learn too much. Whether I shall go as he did remains to be seen, for I have learned much now. Alright, that's end of chapter two. Yeah, I could read more, but... I'd end in the middle of a chapter again, and I don't like doing that. I'll be honest. So, that's where we'll end for today. And thank you all for listening. I hope I didn't ramble too much, and I did try to edit out the, um... inappropriateness of his descriptions of people as best I could. Now for typical podcast business, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe, rate, review on whatever podcast app you're using or wherever you're listening to this. And while five stars is appreciated, reviews are nice and they help get um, other bookworms into the fold. And please share with your friends. If you want to reach out to me, you can do that at talkspod at gmail.com. Phonetically, that is Tango, Oscar, Charlie, Sierra, Paris, Oscar, Delta at gmail.com. If you don't know the phonetic alphabet, it's the initials of this podcast, pod at gmail.com. You can reach me at Facebook on Tangents on Crack Spines Book Club or with a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash tangents on cracked spines. 
even though Anchor has officially become the Spotify for podcasters platform, that hasn't changed. Uh, the Facebook page will have updates posted and polls to vote on the next story. Um, I, if you want to reach out to me personally, uh, the social media is I'm FrankieCore92. Uh, and on face or on Tumblr, I am Name-Flow. Uh, Name being N-M-E-F-L-O-W. If you're interested in merch, I made a few items from my for my personal Etsy shop, which I'll link in the description. Um, if you follow me on TikTok, you'll notice that uh, I have a mug that is not quite right. I have since fixed the uh, design so that it sits right on a mug. Thank you again for listening. Have a wonderful day and... Uh, As the Mistress of the Dark says, unpleasant dreams.